The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Holiness of living is to be the touchstone of the Christian life. Christ came in order that he might save his people from their sins. There was never any thought that they were to be saved in the midst of their sins and to lie down in them again. Though ignorant and unlearned men would seek to pervert the gospel and make it seem to mean something quite other than its real meaning, the Christian would not be drawn aside for a moment to any other position than that which demands holiness and which leads to holiness. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, A Call to Holy Living. You cannot have water unless hydrogen and oxygen form a chemical bond. You cannot have biblical Christianity without both justification and sanctification. And we need a proper understanding of these doctrines and how they relate to each other. Some professing Christians have little concern for personal holiness, while others pursue good works without the necessary foundation of justification. How does a proper grasp of God's saving grace lead to a desire to live a holy life? Let's find out. Today we turn to Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, A Call to Holy Living. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for constraining love, which draws us on toward thee. We pray thee that each child of God shall yield to this love and come to the place where we judge that if one died for all, it was because we were all dead, and that he died for us in order that we who now live in Christ should live henceforth, not unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again. Use the truth to each listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our studies now bring us to the sixth chapter of Romans, and our text today is the first verse in that chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Paul was always aware of the arguments which men around him brought against the gospel. As soon as he preached full and free salvation by grace alone, he recognized that the reaction of the crowd, Jew and Gentile alike, was one of hostility to the truths which he set forth. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he told them that to one section of his listeners, the gospel was a stumbling block, while to another section, it was foolishness. But in spite of this, to every man who had a personal experience of the truth of salvation, 
It was found to be the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who fought the gospel did so from totally different points of view. If it was a stumbling block to the one group, it was because the minimizing of works seemed to decry all that God had himself given through Moses in connection with the liturgy and the form of the Levitical Code. Further, the magnifying of the grace of God seemed to set aside the purpose of the law. Indeed, the gospel does substitute the substance of reality in life for the shadow of formal religious practice. And indeed, it does set aside the superficial and apparent purpose of the law in order to give us the true purpose of the law as a preparation for grace. The Greeks, on the other hand, found it foolish to preach a savior who had apparently been unable to save himself, echoing the cry which the religious leaders near the cross had hurled at the savior. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Now, they, of course, could not look through to the resurrection and see that God would deliver him. They could not understand that he did not want to be saved from death because he wished to save us from death. Thus it was that the Corinthian philosophers mocked at Paul's doctrine and considered it contemptible. To bring men of high degree face to face with a man dying between two thieves, the death of a criminal, was an absurdity which the dignified did not wish to accept. There are not wanting those, even in our day, who continue to find the gospel of Jesus Christ a stumbling block for the first of these reasons, and foolishness because of the second. But there was a third group of offense which called out some of the most bitter hatreds against the gospel. Men, even unsaved pagans, had a conscience which told them the difference between right and wrong. They had all known the struggle to live according to right, and even those with the most abandoned and profligate lives had some sort of standards by which they attempted to live. The inward hearts of the debased, even while mocking good men, approved their goodness within themselves. The inward hearts of those who had achieved some measure of righteousness, even while taking pride in what they had done, acknowledged a superiority in those of the highest integrity. Suddenly, in the face of this Greek and Roman world steeped in its philosophy and accustomed to the arguments of men of Plato's stamp, setting forth that which was the good and distinguishing it from that which was the evil, suddenly... In the face of this world came the disciples preaching the doctrine of salvation by free grace. Men of every religion and the followers of any and every God were immediately provoked against such a gospel. It seemed to be the contradiction of every moral standard and the abandonment of every principle of moral righteousness. Thus it is that at this point in the epistle, Paul takes up the gist of all these enmities, fastens it to the rock and proceeds to destroy it. There were different ways in which the carnal heart of man might seek to pervert the grace of God and leave some room for licentious practice of sin. But any such thought is alien to the gospel. God has moved to save us because he wishes us to be holy men and women, living lives that shall show forth his power within us to overcome the power of sin and death within our lives. Several chapters back in these studies, when I was expounding the 17th verse of the 5th chapter, 
I said that a contrast in that verse was so great that it had caused me to revise the thinking of years and that I was beginning to look upon all of the Christian life in a new way. Some friends who heard that statement came to me weeks later and said that they had been listening to the broadcasts, wondering when I was going to enlarge upon that statement. If an attitude was changed in a revolutionary fashion, would there not be an indication of it? Well, those indications will be seen more and more in the studies that lie before us in the sixth of Romans, for we are going to see the possibility of life in Christ bringing forth holiness to an extraordinary degree. Back in chapter 5 and verse 17, there was the contrast which set forth first the domination of death with the domination of the believer. For in the second half of the sentence, we do not find that the new domination is to be life. The opposite of death is life. But the dynasty of death did not lose its reign within my heart in order that a heavenly dynasty might be established in its place. The dethronement of death is to be followed by my own reigning in Christ. God forbid that anyone should think that the reign is to be independent of him. But the scripture is setting forth that the renewed child of God is to be a monarch. The actual text is in Romans 5:17, if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Justification is to produce sanctification, though justification is not sanctification. What shall we say then, we read in our text? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The question, in order to be completely answered, must be understood. Many commentators have thought that the question, here stated in verse 1, was no different from a seemingly similar question that we shall find in verse 15. For there we shall read, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? The questions are not at all the same. Perhaps we can understand the distinction better if we realize that the argument in the first question concerns abiding in a state of sin while that in the second question concerns sinning in a state of liberty. The two questions might be translated, shall we sin in order to obtain grace, and shall we sin because we are in grace? Both of the thoughts are from the flesh or from Satan. We should not be astonished that the flesh should act in a fleshly manner. Christ has said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It should not astonish us that a hog should wish to wallow, since it is the nature of the hog to wallow. Nor should it astonish us that Satan should act in accordance with his name and nature. He's called the slanderer, for such is the meaning of the name Diabolos, the accuser, the calumniator, the slanderer. Should it amaze us that he seeks to slander the truth, as well as believers? And if he, the liar and the father of it, should hate truth, it is not astonishing that he should hate the truth of the grace of God more than any other. For it was the introduction of this divine principle, grace, unknown to him and undreamed of by him, that destroyed his reign. The first of these questions arose in part from those who imagined that God was teaching a justification that did not involve sanctification. While the two are distinct and must be sharply differentiated, we cannot think of the one apart from the other. Any attempt to make justification dependent upon sanctification is to rob grace of its freeness and to add works in some form to saving grace. That is an intolerable denial of all that we have seen. 
and any attempt to look upon justification as being possible without any continuing righteousness is to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, as Jude tells us. God does not give righteousness apart from newness of life. It is unfortunate that men will not read all of the scriptures and comprehend the entire teaching of the book. It is this failure which caused some men to think for a moment that the teaching of Christianity was that a man might continue wallowing in sin willfully in order that there might be more grace exhibited in his salvation. They heard the apostle preach that God had made a wonderful provision for the free and full acceptance of the ungodly. He set forth the truth in such a fashion that no room was left for doubt that works, character, and virtue played no part in the acceptance of the sinner by God. Even faith itself was not to be commended as though it were something to be rewarded, for it too was the gift of God. Faith had no power in itself. Its value consisted entirely in being centered in Christ. Faith was nothing more than a great emptiness which received the fullness of the work of Christ, who provided all by his one obedient act in the sacrifice of himself upon the cross. This one act of obedience was the sole factor in gaining acceptance for the sinner before God. The unbeliever said, Well, Paul, if we have understood you rightly, we are going to turn over and go back to our sin again. We'll continue to feast upon it and revel in it. For according to your logic, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So we shall go back and let a little more sin abound, and then grace can overflow still more. Isn't that logical? As a matter of fact, it was not logical. It was infernal. And Paul didn't hesitate to say so. Justification and sanctification are as inseparable as a torso and a head. You can't have either without the other. God does not give a gratuitous righteousness apart from newness of life. While justification in its action has nothing to do with sanctification, it does not follow in any logic that sanctification is not necessary. We read in Hebrews 12, 14, Without holiness no man shall see the Lord. The foolish accusation which these people brought against the truth of the gospel and especially against the true relationship between justification and sanctification, is a charge that has been brought in all ages. I recall having read somewhere that in the Middle Ages, there were some who refused baptism, arguing that they would wait till they were old in order to have more sins that could be washed away. If they could wait till their deathbed, they would be the gainers by the wait, since grace would thus have the opportunity of wiping away all the sins that would be committed in the meantime. In our day also, wherever the gospel is freely preached, the same argument is brought against it. Because we say that salvation is freely offered to the chief of sinners, we appear to make light of sin. We cry out that by Christ, all who believe are justified from all things, from which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. When we say it, there are not wanting those who answer that we are making light of the law of Moses, and that we are guilty of diminishing the greatness of sin. And on the other hand, because we declare that the so-called good works of men are in no sense a part of the righteousness which justifies a man, and because we preach that the highest product of a man's own goodness, if relied upon even in the smallest degree, not only does not add anything to the work of Christ for sinners, but that such reliance would cancel and invalidate all that Christ ever did for us, it is because of this 
that some say we make light of holiness. There are the two accusations which have always been brought against the doctrine of grace. The evil that a man commits can never condemn him if he trusts in the blood of Christ. And the good that he does can never save him if he does not trust in the blood of Christ. When the unregenerate hear this truth preached, they say we're making light of evil and that we're making light of good. As a matter of fact, it is the blood of Christ which shows the greatest condemnation of evil And it is the work of Christ which makes possible the greatest production of holiness. But men will not see it because they do not wish to see it. To accept for one moment the truth that is thus set forth is the end of all confidence in the flesh and the death of all pride. Furthermore, the unsaved man, who is looking at things from the point of view of man and not the point of view of God, cannot imagine what inducement we can ever have for the practice of good works if these do not enter into our salvation in any way. Nor can the unsaved man imagine what would cause us to abstain from sin if such sin were so easily be blotted out by one exercise of faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for this reason that the whole gospel seems to them to be strange, strange, incomprehensible, and foolish. Thus it has been said that the gospel is calculated only to mislead the simple and is palatable only to hypocrites and fanatics. I sometimes read sermons that were preached a century or two ago, going back even to the old Puritan divines who lived such holy lives and who exhorted their hearers with such tender and godly fear. One of these ancient preachers ended a sermon on this subject with the following appeal. Is there now anyone present who entertains the objection here made against the gospel? Alas, there are many who will represent the preachers of the gospel as saying to their hearers, only believe and you may live as you please. But methinks there is not one amongst all this host of objectors that believes his own statement. For it is a notorious fact that those very persons who decry our ministry as encouraging licentiousness will, with the very next breath, cry out against us as making the way to heaven so narrow that no one but a few enthusiasts can walk in it. But supposing them to be sincere, they only betray their own ignorance. Paul says in our text, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? No, they know nothing of the matter. They know nothing of the Christian's principles nor do they at all consider his obligations. The Christian never accounts himself free from the moral government of the law, though he knows himself free from its condemning sentence. On the contrary, he feels a thousand motives for obedience, which a mere self-righteous moralist has no idea of. And if a proposal were made to him to sin that grace might abound, he would reply with indignation and abhorrence, God forbid. Far from it. To you then, I say, be diligent in your inquiries and candid in your judgment. Where among the self-righteous moralists did you ever find such attainments in holiness as in the Apostle Paul? These attainments were the genuine fruit of his principles, as he himself has told us in Corinthians. The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead and that he died for all, that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Only receive the gospel as he preached it, 
and it shall operate in you as it did in the churches which were planted by him. And having thus addressed himself to the unsaved, there was also a conclusion for professing Christians. Is there anyone here who by his conduct gives occasion for this objection? That there is not any avowed antinomian or lawless one among us, one who holds that sin is permissible as long as the belief is right? I can easily believe, but are there not those who, by their ungoverned tempers, or their covetous practices, or their unholy lives, give occasion to the enemies of Christianity to blaspheme and to speak evil of the truth which Paul preached? Ah, brethren, if there be one such person who listens to this hour, let him remember with our blessed Lord what he has said. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses will come, but woe unto him by whom they come. For it were better that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were cast into the midst of the sea, than that he should afflict one of God's little ones. It is a lamentable fact that one man who dishonors the gospel by an unholy walk does more injury to the souls of men than ten holy men can do them good. Every man, however blind to the excellencies of the godly, has his eyes open to behold the faults of those who profess godliness and his mouth open too to report and aggravate all the evil that he has either seen or heard. For it is by this that worldly men seek to justify themselves in their contempt of a religion which is so disgraced. I charge you then, my dear brethren, guard against everything which can produce these fatal effects, and beg God rather to cut you off from the earth at once, than to suffer you to become a stumbling block to the world and a scandal to his church. And having thus addressed the ungodly unbelievers and the carnal Christians, there was this final word of comfort and stimulation for those who were seeking to walk in godly fashion. I trust there are those present who bear in mind and exemplify their baptismal vows. Yes, I hope there are amongst us many who walk worthy of their high calling and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by a holy and heavenly behavior. To such persons, I would say, be steadfast in your course, and endeavor to abound more and more. And in order that you may see what heights are to be attained, set the Lord Jesus Christ before you, both in his death and resurrection, so that being of the same plant in the likeness of the one, ye may be also in the likeness of the other. What had he to do with the cares or pleasures of this world when he was buried in the grave? Or when has a moment's intermission of his services to God occurred since his resurrection from the dead? Let this then be your pattern, both in your death unto sin and in your living unto righteousness. And as you acknowledge yourselves to have been bought with a price, seek and labor to glorify him with your bodies and your spirits which are his. And as we hear such exhortations from a past century, it should cause us, who have named the name of Christ, to search our hearts today. Perhaps as never before in the history of the church, there is a wave of low-level living which causes the message of the church to be lightly esteemed and the unregenerate world to be in a mocking mood toward our profession. Furthermore, the babes of the flock are brought in amongst Christians who seem to think lightly of Christ. As I have come to this chapter in our study, I have myself felt a deeper stirring of the Spirit of God, 
a more earnest call of the Spirit to higher and holier living. In the hours that I have spent poring over this chapter, there has come to me such a hunger and thirst after righteousness as I have never yet known. I have poured out my soul in prayer for those who listen to these words or who shall read them. Brethren, we must live holy lives. Sanctification for us in these days is an imperative that must take precedence over all else in our lives. Our abiding must be in Christ. It is to this end that he died. And we pray thee, our God, to give restlessness to any who have not been born again. But upon thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And a new sense of the rich wonder of full salvation in Christ. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power. Now unto the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. God has saved us from sin unto good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. He wants us to live as a holy people, demonstrating to the world the new life we have in Jesus Christ. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, A Call to Holy Living. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, A Call to Holy Living, or simply request message number r 6 We'd also like to make available to you our free booklet entitled, Who's Choosing Whom? Do you view God as patiently waiting in heaven, hoping that people will turn to Him? If so, this free booklet will open your eyes to an amazing biblical truth. Long before you chose to follow the Lord, He chose you for salvation and worked in your life to bring you to Himself. Far from creating confusion or controversy, the doctrine of election and God's sovereign grace should fill us with confidence and adoration for our Lord, who saves to the uttermost. Ask for your free copy of Who's Choosing Whom When You Call or Write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call us toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.